I tell this story that there's a woman I follow that like wakes up at 5 a.m., gets her soul cycle in, cooks a perfect breakfast for her family, goes to work, hangs out with celebrities half the day, then has cocktails and gets home in time for dinner and like is able to read a book. And I was like, she must be on drugs. And when I found out she was on drugs, I was so happy because I was like, this is not possible. It's actually not possible to do that every day and not collapse. Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks. This episode is for all of you fearless freelancers, side hustlers, and big thinkers who just need a little encouragement and push in the right direction. My guest today is Rebecca Minkoff, a fashion industry icon and design leader in luxury handbags, accessories, footwear, and apparel. Here's Rebecca in her own words on how she makes a living and the infamous bat mitzvah dress that started it all. Most notably, I make a living through my company that I founded over 20 years ago. I can't believe I'm saying that. Rebecca Minkoff, a lifestyle and accessories company meant for the free-spirited, bohemian, with a touch of rock and roll uh, woman. And um, that is primarily how I make my living. Yes, but I know the journey hasn't always been easy. And uh, a lot of people at one point 20 years ago were like, Rebecca, you're an overnight success. (laughs) You kind of hit the scene with your I Love New York t-shirt that was on television. The next thing you knew, everybody knew your name, but it's not like that was the first time that Rebecca Minkoff designed something. No, I started designing things when I was eight years old uh, on my mom's 100-year-old sewing machine. And then I designed things all through high school. I went to a performing arts high school. So I I was definitely deeply embedded in that sort of craft. Uh, The I Love New York shirt is what got me, you know, I say overnight success because I'm still 20 years later getting told that. But I had a five-piece collection that I was selling to little boutiques around the city. And the Out of New York shirt was just the thing that popped it, that became what got my foot in the door, essentially. And I heard on your podcast that you also designed your own bat mitzvah dress. I did. My priorities were a bit mixed up. I was like just getting boobs. And I was like, it's my bat mitzvah. You're becoming a woman. And I'm just growing boobs. I got to design something that like showcases my newly budding rack off, which doesn't make any sense. But, you know, there were going to be boys there that I had crushes on. So I was like, let me do like an empire waist with like a square neck. And I was also really into outfits from the 1700s or Bridgerton style kind of dressing. So I I liked how they showcased the ladies shelf. And that (laughs) was why I wanted to design my own dress for whatever messed up reason. Uh, You were always a forward thinker and you've always been really a trailblazer in fashion. So I could see the roots for that. But also that takes a certain kind of parent. I'm thinking now, right now, my daughter is almost 11 and she would be horrified if she knew I was even talking about about this. But I can just relate to where you were in your exploration into being a woman. And it sounds like your parents really embraced. I can think of a lot of Jewish mothers and I know I know many who would have said, are you crazy? You're designing your own dress. This is not going to work. I don't I could see your boobs. <laughs> but they. it sounds like they really encouraged you a the way. They did. My parents have always been like, if you want to go, go do it. You know, here's the freedom to pursue that. And it's not like I was doing anything risque. So they were comfortable with the appropriate amount of skin being shown for a bat mitzvah 
And I think they liked that I was making something and really proud to create something for such a a big moment in a Jewish girl's life. So would you say that that is something that gave you the confidence then to do something as crazy as moving to New York City at the age of 18 and wanting to start a career as a fashion designer? I think it was the fact that throughout early childhood into my teenage years and young adult years, it was very much like figure it out. If you want to go, go. I I even asked my mom recently, she let me go to New York when I was 16 with my boyfriend for New Year's Eve, unsupervised for a week. And I was like, why the hell did you let me do that? That was crazy. We made a homeless person buy us alcohol, you know, like what the hell were you thinking? And she was like, you seemed like you had good intentions and you, you had a smart head on your shoulders. I didn't even worry about it. And so that was the story of my life. So yes, at 18, when I said I wanted to move, they didn't blink. Ah, well, I think also you and I are parenting in a very, very different era. Cause I think about some of the stuff that I did too, as a kid. And I'm like, I don't even know how I got away with that, but here we are. Like all of those choices, they make us stronger. Right. And they, they make you able to take risks and you've taken some risks in your career. Can you talk about that first big leap? I mean, before people knew your name, before the morning after bag, which is another thing that sort of continued to keep your fashions in the spotlight. Can you think of a moment when you really took a big risk in your business without knowing that it was going to pay off? I think that when I was working for this designer, doing my line on the side, and I had a very close relationship with the CEO, and she said, you know, you're fired unless you want to dedicate all the passion you're putting into what you're doing to my business. And I was like, I can't honestly tell you I can do that. She's like, well, then you got to go. And so that was a huge risk because it's not like I had, you know, I had three stores I was selling to on consignment. (laughs) You know, it's not like I had this cushion or my parents helping me financially. Like there was no safety net. And so I think that was probably the biggest risk when I was like, well, I got to figure this out. How do I make a living? You know, Mm, I do know. And I also know you're the founder of the Female Founder Collective. And I'd love to know what your mission is there. Because it feels like to me as an entrepreneur, I feel like I've always been about helping other people grow and live their dream and gain the skills when they work with me to to be able to pursue their passion. So that just like, honestly, Rebecca, it really... I understand why she would have said that, but it kind of hurts my heart that she couldn't allow space for both of you and both of your ambitions to exist. Do you think like if you were in that situation, you might handle it differently with the experiences that you've had? And is this something that through the Female Founder Collective, you're hoping to cultivate for other females in this industry? So I've had a number of women come work at Rebecca Minkoff and have side hustles. But with one, you know, I have the frank conversation. How much of your time are you focusing on your side hustle versus me? And I need you to make sure that for the eight hours a day you're here, it's all me. And then the other woman, we did end up letting go and she went off and started an incredibly successful jewelry company. And so I think that sometimes you need that kick in the ass to like go do it because when you're half-assing two things, you'll never be able to focus fully on another And with starting the Female Founder Collective, I think what I would love to be able to provide or help provide with women is a net of education, experience, 
community that as a founder, you might not get. I certainly didn't start out with a business education or any idea how to run a business. How much better off would I have been if I had had, you know, an organization like mine to give me that education. And so I think that my goal with that is not only can it be lonely, so you get a community, you get education and you get resources to sort of skip a couple steps. There's no shortcuts, but there's definitely some steps that you can kind of get a leg up on it and get to the destination quicker. What were some of those things that you wish you had known? Those mistakes that you made that you really learned and grew from? I wish I had known how to profitably manage a business, how to cost out a garment. When all you're given is the fabric is this and the cost to make it is this. And you're like, well, I guess I'll just add this together and get a price. And that's, it's not that simple. I wish I had had a much richer understanding of what it takes and what it costs to run a business. I think the decisions I made, I sort of said, oh, I got my brother. He's the CEO. He's the business guy. I won't worry about it for too long. And when I did begin to understand and broaden my horizons, my decisions were just smarter and better. And I could make well-educated advice to a situation that I wish I just had known it earlier. Wait, hold on. You heard that right. Rebecca's brother is the CEO of her company. Can you imagine juggling multi-millions when you can't even decide who gets control of the remote? But Rebecca learned early on that giving up a bit of control can be a good thing. While I was limping along with my apparel line in New York, slowly going into credit card debt, my dad didn't give me the money. He co-signed to open up the card, but he was like, this is on you to pay. So let's just say I was about 60 grand in debt at that point from, again, not knowing how to do things. Um, and I was like, I actually have no idea how I'm going to pay this credit card. Like I'm making the monthly payments, but that number is not getting smaller. When the bag showed signs of, you know, that feeling and momentum that when you get a hit on your hands, you can, you can feel, uh, I called my dad once again. I was like, so I know that I don't know how to pay this money back. Will you please loan me 2,500 bucks to, you know, make the first round of production for the bags? And he's like, I'm out. I'm already worried you won't be able to pay the 60 K call your brother. He might help you. So my brother was in the software industry. He had a very simple, easy life. And I called him that day. And over several years, his involvement became more and more. And then he could see where this was going to go. And he was like, all right, I'm in. So in 2011, he joined full-time as the CEO and moved his family up to New York to really run the business day to day. Wow. How is that working with someone that you have such a long history with? It can be great and terrible as, <laughs> uh, as anyone who has a partner or relation or sibling or husband who they work with. You know, we've had rocky times. You know, in the beginning, it's less pressure because you're really owning your lanes. And then the other one starts to find out more about the other one's path and journey and decisions and has opinions and then sparks can fly. So we hired a business sort of mediator many years ago to help us when we do get into those impasses. And that's been critical mm, because smart. there were times where we didn't speak for nine months. We spoke in front of our teams and we did business, but then we'd go back into our shared office and not say a word to each other. So when you get into those difficult situations, it's always important to have someone to kind of unsnarl the tangles. Wow. That's really smart, actually, especially when you are so close to 
the people you work with. It's not just a business relationship. Like he's your brother. You have to be able to talk at some point and to work through it. And sometimes having that third party that's neutral can really help cut through. You talked about the bag. (laughs) And um, I'm curious for you, sometimes I struggle with like being known for one thing. Like you really made your name at that point as a handbag designer, but that wasn't all that you did. And obviously, you know, we see the breadth of your collection now and all of the other things that you're doing. And I wonder if there was ever a time where you were concerned that you might get sort of stuck in just being known for the bag. Yeah, we were very fearful of that. And that was happening. So we started seeing in 2006, 2007, 2008, oh, you're just a handbag designer. We couldn't possibly take you seriously in any other category. So it wasn't the best financial move at the time, but to escalate the launch of clothing and then shoes and jewelry and all these things was something we definitely needed to do because we knew we wanted to be a lifestyle brand. And the only way to do that was to kind of go full force and launch these other categories. So it was extraordinarily uncomfortable to launch those categories. And in hindsight, we didn't have to launch them so quickly, but at the time it really felt like we had to. What did you do behind the scenes that people may not have seen in order to set yourself up for success? That's a big leap that you took. So I think that we had a woman at the time who was our president who had come from the apparel industry. So she was well-versed in how to manage and set that up. I also had a background in apparel, so it wasn't like a new territory. We found a gentleman in the shoe space, a company that would help us uh, manufacture and design everything. And so plugging into their infrastructure. And so we kept finding best of breed partners who did whatever category that was. And we didn't just do a traditional license. We didn't want to give away you know, the design and the name to someone. So it was really about creating either joint ventures or manufacturing and design and manufacturing agreements with these partners, which they were all open to do. And that's a very normal in my industry so that we could leverage the best of them without having to internally expand more. So I always, you know, will tell designers, like there's tons of different models out there and to explore them all before you feel like you have to take on the cost of it yourself. That's really smart. And even for people who are not in your industry, I think they can relate to the benefits of partnership and kind of borrowing from the knowledge base or the experience or or the the profile of someone who's already done that thing. The other thing that I've seen has helped people become aware of your brand is having, frankly, having celebrities that want to wear it, that wear it on television, that talk about it. And, you know, being in, in magazines and media has really helped to make your brand known as a household name. But I know that's not, it's not like an easy thing in, in any industry. Just be like, sure, just get a couple of celebrity endorsements and you're on your way. How did it unfold for you? And is it something that's part of your strategy or just something that, you know, if celebrities want to wear it and want to talk about your brand, then that's just uh icing on the cake. It was the only way to launch when I started. When I was starting, that culture was also on the rise. Before I started, there was another handbag company and Kate Moss wore their bag and they went from like 5 million to 25 million in a year just because she wore that bag. And so you could see the power of that. So that was like first thing on my list once I had the bag was, okay, I got to get this to celebrities. And however I do that and 
you know, whether it was connections to people I'd met in the industry or friends of friends or stylists, I was always on the lookout. My first big celebrity or a big batch of them came from an inbound email where an agent at CAA emailed wanting a bag. And I was like, I'll give you this bag, get it on all your clients and you can have as many bags as you want. And she did just that. So I think you know, I was always having my tentacles out for celebrities. And then as celebrities shifted into influencers, you know, we've pivoted to that. And we obviously still have relationships with celebrity, but it is also important as things evolve to keep augmenting. I'm sure now we're going to try and dress someone on Twitch. Who knows? You know, like the playing field keeps changing. So we have to make sure that we're always sort of in the forefront of who our customer knows and loves and who they follow and like and being in that pop culture zeitgeist. All right. And all of you listening, don't go like DMing her, being like, give me a free bag. (laughs) It's strategic, right? The partnerships that you make, it's not just like, let me just throw a bunch of free bags out there. It's also, I imagine, about who is speaking to the audience that you're trying to reach. Of course. Yes. We definitely focus our energy on the people we're working with to make sure it's a similar audience or similar taste level. If someone else wears it, that's awesome. But we sort of have a core group of women that we say, okay, good. That aligns with what you, when you close your eyes and you think of the Rebecca Minkoff woman, that aligns with it. Something else I've noticed, uh, speaking of the Rebecca Minkoff women, as a woman of color, looking at who you choose to put on your website, the models that you use, the way that your brand is presented, it is very diverse and very inclusive. Is that by design? No pun intended. (laughs) So it's by design consciously, but since day one, it wasn't something that we had to back into. It wasn't something that when you saw what happened last year, all these brands were like, we're diverse. We celebrate all colors. You know, I think you could go back to every single runway show we've had, or, you know, if whatever images you can find to me, beauty has always been in our differences. And so, um, it's not a strategy. It's just because how many different looking women are out there that are my customer that want to see themselves represented. And it has to be conscious because the easy thing to do is just pick a white woman, right? Like just, Oh, that's what came in the door. So we want to go above and beyond that because I want to showcase beauty in all different skin tones and all different shapes and sizes. That's just me. Uh, so it's conscious from a purpose driven viewpoint versus, Oh, this will be good for sales. Mm, That's a good point. That's a good point. And just from the other side of it, it really does help to feel when I look at a magazine to feel like I'm being included. It really, you can really tell the difference, I think, when it's put on versus when it's organic and inherent to your business identity, really. Let's talk about your book. You have a new book called Fearless. Talk to me about where the idea for that book began and who you're hoping to reach with your message there. So I feel like we were very, very risky so often in our company. And when we were at the like evening before the biggest risk I felt we were going to take as a company, we were closing down Green Street to do our show on the street for whoever wanted to come. We were going to have influencers in our show, which might sound normal now, but wasn't then. It was a see now, buy now show. So it was, everything was available immediately after the show. So a lot of risky things within our world. 
and I was having cold feet and a consultant friend of ours said, every time you guys have followed the pack, you've lost, you know, you didn't get the cred you deserved. You didn't get the recognition. Anytime you guys went your own way. And he pointed out all these examples. Um, he's like, you won. And so he was like, there was a fearlessness to that approach. So you were scared, but you did it anyways. It doesn't mean we just don't magically have fear. And by the end of my book, you're not going to be scared. You're going to be scared a lot in your journey. And my goal with the book is to inspire you through my journey to throw out the old rules and sort of know that you're going to be scared, but do those things anyways. And so throughout the 21 chapters are just little touch points where you can have a new rule as sort of almost like your stable guide of when you're scared, now I do what again? Or how to increase success or how to foster more connectivity with people. So my goal is that you're not free of fear. It just means that, you know, you do it anyways. And to the entrepreneurs out there, to the people that want to take risk, to someone looking to get ahead within their corporate structure, you're going to have to take risks and they might be fearful, but then hopefully you have some stable ground you can stand on to do that. As an entrepreneur, sometimes we feel that we live in a constant state of risk, and it can be terrifying. However, when I became a parent, I learned that when you love something so much, you can't live every day in fear. There's a saying that when you're a parent, you live your life with your heart outside of your body. And it's so true. But in both parenting and entrepreneurship, you have to keep going in spite of the risk. Another parenting lesson that has served me well in business is developing clear boundaries. When you know you have to pick up your kids or get dinner on the table, you work twice as hard to fit it all in without compromising your most important boundaries. I tested my boundaries a lot when I had my baby, my first one, and your boundaries change all the time, you know, and I, and I think You can't look to social media to see how another mother working woman is expertly doing it. I tell this story that there's a woman I follow that like wakes up at 5 a.m., gets her soul cycle in, cooks a perfect breakfast for her family, goes to work, hangs out with celebrities half the day, then has cocktails and gets home in time for dinner and like is able to read a book. And I was like, she must be on drugs. And when I found out she was on drugs, I was so happy because I was like, this is not possible. It's actually not possible to do that every day and not collapse. And so I just think like we have to sort of say, what do we want to create for ourselves? And what are those boundaries and how do we achieve them? Doesn't mean they're going to happen overnight, but how do we push for them? You're never going to have it all at one time. You might be like a terrible mom one day and then an awesome at work or vice versa. And I think the pandemic has only made those worlds come together even more. So make your boundaries. If they're not achievable yet, how can you get there? Because the silver lining of all this intermingling is even though it's more, 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 the empathy and understanding that you have more outside of work is also there. So I think use that as leverage to say, you've seen my kids, they need my attention, or you've seen my dog, he wants to go out on a walk. You know, I have another part of my life. This is a great reminder that you're not seeing the whole story on social media. So stop putting so much pressure on yourself to be perfect. Here's what we learned from Rebecca today. Create boundaries. Whether you're making time for your side hustle, raising a kid, or striving to be the best cat mom you can be, know what you're willing to compromise on and what you should stand firm on. 
Even though entrepreneurs have been said to be control freaks, are you really the person who should be running everything? Find partners who truly know you and complement your strengths so you can focus on what you're good at. You win by being fearless, take risks, and strive to stand out in your field. Rebecca's book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success is available now at your favorite bookstore. Also, check out her podcast, Superwomen, with Rebecca Minkoff. The I Make a Living podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. Balancing your books, client relationships, and business isn't easy. FreshBooks gives you the info and time you need to focus on your big picture, your business, team, and clients. Right now, you can go to freshbooks.com slash podcast and take advantage of an exclusive offer for our listeners. And while you're at it, check out all of the resources made available to you through our show notes. Our executive producer is Francisco Erzmendi. Editorial and content producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. And I'm Damona Hoffman, your producer and host. You can follow me at Damona Hoffman and FreshBooks at FreshBooks on all of the social platforms for more tips, tools, and resources because it's your business. We'll be back on Thursday.